0: Night. Now let's put some spots in it. You're listening to CITR, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And you just heard right there from 1969, Kane's Cousins, with support, your local bands from Florida. Today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with John Lydon, Johnny Rotten of Pill, and the Sex Pistols from March the 26th, 2010, almost 10 years ago, on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Right now, going to play something, thank you, Dave Spicer, By the Disney Boys from Berlin. Featuring CeCe from the Spitfires and Chris Fry from Sludge and Radio Berlin. And they actually met in Berlin as well. So here are the Disney Boys with Find Water. And then an interview with Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show! Are you?
1: <laughs> I'm John lyden I'm half a century young, and looking good at it.
0: And John, Pill are back on the road. Who's in Pill these days?
1: Bruce Smith on drums, uh, Lou Edmonds on uh, various assorted instruments from uh, the Middle East, uh, including a guitar for those who like Western twangs, and. Got on bass.
0: John, I thought it's really interesting that Bruce Smith is back in the band because he also played with the Pop Group and the Slits. Yeah. Ha- have you heard the new Slits LP? No, that's nothing to do with it. But have you heard the new Slits? No, I LP? haven't. I thought it's really cool that Paul Cook's daughter is playing in the Slits. Oh, now. that's
1: been quite some time, that.
0: Holly Cook is in the Slits.
1: Yeah, that's that's just quite some time. Uh, uh, my, my wife is uh, Ariana, the lead singer's mother of have the Slits, so we're all interrelated.
0: John Lydon, do you know that Sue Catwoman's kids have a band too?
1: No, I don't know.
0: Gosh, I must be
1: out of date. Do you find all this out on Twitter? <laughs>
0: Exactly. They're called Good Weather Girl, and it made me think, when was the last time you saw Sue? Oh, I remember the Weather Girls. (laughs) No, not the Weather Girls. Oh, they were good. Oh, I used to love
1: the Weather Girls. They were hilarious.
0: When did you last see the Weather Girls?
1: Oh, that's ages back now. But me, I like all kinds of music.
0: When was the last time you saw Sue Catwoman, John Lydon?
1: Long time ago. Why do you insist on adopting that John Lydon, Monica?
0: Well, should I just call you Johnny, then, or yeah, John? Yeah, John.
1: John, please. It sounds a bit too formal, and uh, it's rather like being interrogated by uh, Norwegian police.
0: <laughs> okay, I guess it's just to help identify you to the radio listeners out there. In case okay. people. Okay,
1: gotcha. So I understand what the format is.
0: In case people are wondering who I am talking to, but they will recognize the voice from many years of rockin'. And also, John, you are a gooner, aren't you? You are a gooner.
1: Uh, I've supported Arsenal since I was four years old, yes. I would be very careful of the term gooner, though, because that's a term uh, uh, which in its original format was uh, applied to the Arsenal football hooligans (laughs) and not the regular
0: fans. I was phoning you here from Vancouver, BC, and we once had an NASL team called the Vancouver Whitecaps, and there were some connections between the Whitecaps and Arsenal, and I was wondering if you could tell the people about Alan Ball. He used to play for the Whitecaps. Oh, Alan
1: Ball of Arsenal fame?
0: Yes, he played for the Whitecaps.
1: Oh, most wonderful player. Loved that man's skill and style on the ball. Uh, his career really was made at Everton, uh, and he kind of finished up at Arsenal. But, you know, we love him still. A legend.
0: He played for the Vancouver Whitecaps, helped him win I the... I doubt if he does that now. I mean,
1: he must be nearly,
0: nearly 60. Well, he did in 1979. He helped win the Soccer Bowl. But I was just thinking, there's quite That's a few...
1: That's fantastic. No, does... oh, I'm really pleased you, you brought that up, because right? uh, I, I love to hear of, like, uh, of old players doing well you know in their, in their retirement years another because far, far too many of them are i don't know sent to the knacker's yard you know like poor old horses for dog food
0: John another player that played on the white caps from arsenal was John Samuels Do you remember Oh yes
1: Johnny Samuels
0: What can you tell the people about Johnny Samuels
1: Well he was an odd player some didn't like him at all because he could be fairly inconsistent but for me, he wore the red and white of Arsenal, therefore perfect. I'm sure. very loyal to my Arsenal. Yes. In fact, I'm a loyal person generally, except to uh, the royal family.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for answering these Arsenal questions, because I've one last one here about Arsenal. We had Pierce O'Leary play for the Whitecaps, who? not Pierce O'Leary, who is David O'Leary's brother. Oh, that's fun. And I think David O'Leary isn't he the classic Arsenal player? Isn't he one of the most famous Arsenal yes, players yes, ever? Yes, yes, and
1: then he went on to be an unclassic manager for such teams as Leeds United. <laughs> uh, I used the kind of uh, David O'Leary used to drink in a pub I used to drink in around the back of Finsbury Park.
0: Was that the Sir? He
1: comes from a time when Arsenal players actually used to uh, socialise with the locals.
0: Was that the Sir George Roby pub? No, it was the Moray Arms. What was the Sir George Roby pub like? That was quite a famous pub, wasn't it?
1: It was all right. It was a local. It's an it al- was a pub that used to celebrate the comedian George Roby. So it was, a, it was a very good atmosphere to be growing up in, surrounded by reminiscences of comedy. John, it, and, it, and for me, a perfect backdrop to my career.
0: Well, John Lydon, it's an honor to speak to you, and I've been trying to speak to you since, believe it or not, October the 14th, 1984, when Pill played in Vancouver at the War Memorial Gymnasium with punk rock band DOA. Do you remember that gig at all? 1984, Vancouver. You were wearing pajamas and were covered in spit.
1: I remember not many gigs because, as you must understand, I've performed almost continuously for nearly 30 years now. Uh, but I, I always have fond memories of Canada, in uh, particularly Toronto, because I have family there. They, you will always run into these idiots that just love to spit at you, and they, because they've read it in the newspapers and have been ill-informed that that be the done thing. It should not be the done thing. You're spreading your disease. Uh, I, I had, when I was young, a very, very serious illness called meningitis, which put me in a coma for three months. Uh, the, when I came out of that coma, apart from losing my memory, some of the side issues I've had to live with all my life is very, very bad sinus problems. And so when I'm on stage, Every now and again, I have to clear either my nostril or my throat from phlegm. I overproduce those two issues. Uh, But I do not spit at an audience, and I do not expect them to spit at me. I always have a bucket neatly placed. So if spitting be your proclivity in life, bring your own bucket.
0: John, has the spitting stopped? Do people still spit? Of course, of course. How about...
1: Ages ago. And I'm touring now with Public Image, which is a very different kind of audience, really, where uh, people don't feel the need to try to be ignorant, which is uh, an unfortunate side issue of the pistols. Uh, Many of our audience uh, got it wrong. Uh, We have to uh, progress the human spirit, not digress it.
0: I remember, though, I didn't make it to the gig of just hearing reports. And they weren't
1: pajamas. That was my idea of style.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. Because there also was... Lack of white
1: stripes, yes?
0: Maybe I was confused because there's also the keyboard player for the Boomtown Rats, Johnny Fingers.
1: Oh, very different. He didn't have elasticated cuffs on the ankles or the waist.
0: (laughs) Indeed. (laughs)
1: There'd be the style issue.
0: John... Jim Walker, the first Pill drummer, was from Vancouver. I once asked Paul Cook about Jim Walker, and he said, you'll have to ask John about that. What can you tell the people about Jim Walker from Well, they Vancouver? wouldn't have known
1: each other, so Paul was dead right. Uh, Jim Walker was a very strange character. Uh, he seemed open and friendly enough until he joined Pill, and I didn't quite understand the reasons for it, but he went very dark and somber there for a while. Which was a shame, and and he didn't last very long.
0: It was pretty incredible, though, a guy from Vancouver moving to England and then ending up in a band with you, John. Well, if you're good enough, that's what
1: happens.
0: Was that all through Melody Maker or through an ad? How did he end up in the actual band?
1: I think I'd spotted an ad in a paper and and kind of unwittingly thought, well, you know, why not? But it, it paid off. I mean, he was an excellent drummer.
0: It was great too, like from Vancouver, BC. Right, and
1: he introduced, you know, a, a very nice free-flowing drum style, which uh, definitely gave wind to the theme tune of, of Public Image being Public Image.
0: Van- Miss him dearly. Very near. Apparently,
1: he's at the moment
0: working in film. Oh, really? He also later formed the band The Pack, didn't he? The band yeah, The well, Pack. Yeah, well, he
1: also moved to Israel to work in a kibbutz for some... God, unearthly reason. I mean, Jim's Jim's a strange one, but fair play to him.
0: Very near Vancouver is Seattle, Washington, and Pill have a song called Seattle. Was that song inspired by a lazy boy chair that was stolen by the band Green River, who opened up for you when Pill played in Seattle? Uh pardon
1: I didn't understand any of that you talk too much and too too slurry
0: Oh okay John Lydon here it is you have the song Seattle by the yes. band Pill When you play
1: Well firstly I'll tell you how Seattle was written it's because we had a week off in the middle of a tour and we were stuck in Seattle And so we coined the song's title Seattle It wasn't at the time very relevant to the song really But then years and years and years later were those riots you had in Seattle over the World Trade Order. Yes. And if you you check out some of the refrains in the song about palaces, barricades, threats, me promises, it shows a great deal of foresight on my part.
0: I had heard John Lydon that the song Seattle was inspired also by a lazy boy chair, like a chair that had been stolen from you by the band that opened for a you. A chair? A chair had been stolen. <laughs> like, th- the band that I'm,
1: I'm sure if that was the case... A chair would have been mentioned. Because
0: <laughs> apparently it was about a bat. Ba-
1: yeah, but listen, when I write songs, they're not obtuse, right? <laughs> and if it was about a deck chair, I would have said so. So that's nonsense.
0: John, when you did I'm a Celebrity, did you think about the movie Carry On Camping at all? Uh,
1: I suppose it was in my psychology somewhat, being British and being that that's our, our fun-loving approach. Such events, but no, mostly I did that to raise money for some charities that I was affiliated with, and I raised a substantial amount.
0: Carry On Camping is that was my only
1: reason for doing it.
0: Carry On Camping is probably the best carry on movie, isn't it? Though
1: it's kind
0: of like how the English really are.
1: I mean, we, you know. We're, we're very, very good at taking things seriously when we need to, but when we don't need to, we're very good at having fun.
0: John Lydon, did you like being on Judge Judy?
1: No. What I think, well, let me deal with the Judge Judy issue. That was a false accusation, and the man who made it clearly went for fame and fortune, rather dealing with any said accusation in a proper law court, he went to the TV. Uh, Judge Judy seen the, uh, the falseness in his claim, and indeed I won hands down. Uh, I didn't enjoy the environment at all, and the prospect of being judged on, by, by a, a, a TV company utterly appalled me. I, uh, I, there's a worry I have about that kind of show, that that might just lead into trial by TV as indeed the O.J. fiasco showed, uh, where how a sensible judgment was not reached because of the TV aspect of it.
0: Because I guess that's what I was wondering is, should all rock disputes be handled with Judge Judy?
1: No. And indeed, I don't think you should judge the law as entertainment.
0: Would you yourself ever consider going back to school and trying to become Judge Johnny at all? No. John Lydon, Time Zone uh-huh. with Africa Bombada was probably the first rock record with hip hop. How did you hook up yeah, with No, Not probably, it was. How did you hook up with Africa Bombada? Uh,
1: mutual respect of the same kind of music. Uh, in the early days of, of, uh, of what we call hip hop, which later turned into rap. People had much more open minds about, uh, about music and you could be involving all genres of music and, and basically balancing them into a jolly good evening of dance with some social awareness lyrics. Uh, and so I took great joy of, of working with Africa Bambaataa and I think we made a really excellent record. Unfortunately, of course, it didn't grab the uh, the mainstream headliners, the later uh, pieces of work with uh, ACDC. Uh, what was it? No, Aerosmith. And uh, uh, I can't remember his name now, Run TMC. Because they definitely they followed on our heels.
0: How did you get together with the band Left Field, John?
1: Um, Through mutual acquaintances and... Uh, I used to work in uh, play centers for problem children before the Sex Pistols. My job was to uh, keep them off the streets and keep them safe and and teach them a little thing or two about life. And indeed, one of Left Field, Neil, did the same job. And through a mutual friend who also did the same kind of work, uh, we got together. It took uh, just a little over a year before we fine-tuned it down to a proper rhythm. And the lyrics flowed naturally. Unfortunately for us, and for me in particular, because I live in Los Angeles, you see, uh, the record was done some three months before its release. But on the day of release in Los Angeles, we had those dreadful forest fires. And so the refrain in the song, Burn Hollywood Burn, was automatically presumed that I was celebrating the forest fires of L.A., I live in L.A. I would never celebrate the burning of my house or anybody else's. Wrongly judged.
0: But I think you are doing that song on this current tour, aren't you, with Uh Pill?
1: I enjoy doing it, yes. That's in a, in, in a slightly, uh, well, yes, a more, more seriously, definitely different way. Because uh, that song, uh, in the studio, we used a lot of programming. And it, it was computer-led. But when, when I play live with Pill. We like to play it uh, analogue. We like to play it on instruments. Although public image is well known for its, uh, its, uh, uh, its use of uh, technology, it's not the only thing we can do.
0: John, I have the Sex Pistols on 8-track, believe it or not. I have the Sex Pistols on oh, 8 Oh,
1: that's showing your
0: age. 8-track cartridge. Actually, I bought it a couple of years ago for $25, which actually was a bargain. I heard it was going for 100 But I've researched this, and I've found out that pill, have you, you
1: Have you still found a deck that plays 8-track?
0: Yes, you can find them everywhere. Lots very of,
1: good. Love, I've, I've still got some very old Roy Orbison. <laughs>
0: Well, what I was wondering is Pills 2nd Edition, the metal box, Pills 2nd Edition in America, came out on 8-track. Do you have one at all, Johnny? I don't
1: think it came out on 8-track, but it's definitely been re-released, I think now three or four years ago. I did a small deal with a very small label where we re-released it on vinyl.
0: Apparently, according to the internet, it's actually on 8-track, Pills 2nd Edition. Uh,
1: somebody might actually have it on 8-track. I don't know how it got there. It was never part of any arrangement I've had with a record company.
0: Did you think that when you were doing album that you might have had 8-track? You know, like album, cassette, t-shirt, 8-track? Did that ever come into discussion? No, because
1: the technology was already out of
0: date. John Lydon, do you like Devo? Yeah? I had heard that Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo was asked to be your replacement in the Sex Pistols. Did you ever hear that? No. John, what's good about Samsonite travel pants?
1: I don't suppose very much at all. They're uncomfortable and they cause terrible crease marks on your trousers although Samsonite, they make fairly decent suitcases, uh, made a brilliant line in travel pants uh, some years ago, which I still have to this day. Uh, What I liked most about them was they had zips from the ankle all the way up to the hip on each leg, and you could open it up, and then there was a nylon mesh which would let your legs breathe more easily in hotter climates. Very, very excellent. They look very smart. I could not understand why they never took off as an idea.
0: Samsonite travel pants. Mm -hmm. Did you use those when you went to South Africa? Because you did some shark cage diving. That was incredible. I I think
1: you'd be rather insane in in, 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 in nylon mesh and thin, thin linen (laughs) to be climbing up and down mountains in South Africa because I met many a gorilla pack there. And, and you certainly can't be wearing them diving for great whites.
0: When you were in Africa, did you visit Ginger Baker at all?
1: No. What, what? in a completely different part of the continent. What's it's, it? It's Africa's a very large country.
0: I just thought, because maybe you had done some stuff with them before, that you might. Yeah, no.
1: When you do these kind of filming, you're on a very tight budget, and you don't get any time really to go off wandering.
0: How, what was it like with the sharks when you were down with the sharks thrilling. in a cage?
1: Thrilling, because I'd studied marine biology and had a, an interest in sharks, I suppose, ever since I'd seen Jaws uh, and naturally followed it through. Uh, they're much more magnificent in the flesh, shall we say, than they are dead or stuffed in museums. You... They're a thrilling creature, and I totally respect them. John, you did a. As indeed I do all, all walks of life, all frames of life.
0: Iggy Pop, John, did an ad in the UK for insurance. Naughty Holder from Slade did a great fish and chips ad. And you did an amazing one for butter.
1: Yeah, well, that was a product I actually believed and backed and supported because uh, British products uh, in Britain are getting a, a hard shift of it. And foreign exports are killing what what is British commerce. And so I was quite happy to back that.
0: It it had one of the best enemy headlines ever. The New Music Express had the headline, John Lydon revives country life butter sales. That was a great headline. Yes,
1: apparently by some 87%. (laughs) So it was a successful campaign all round. But the, the point being, that uh, at the time, there was a lot of negativity that was uh, slung at me, that I was somehow selling out and becoming commercial. Well, I will always be commercial when it's backing British product. Indeed, I am a British product
0: myself. And you are John Lydon. And John, when shooting that ad, I noticed a whole bunch of cows chasing after you. What was that like? How was well, it there you- was
1: something like a script. But the people that um, picked me for this campaign had the common sense to let me play with that. And so there was a lot of improvising, which is why it works so well. That's the real John having fun.
0: Preparing for this pill tour, John, what sort of food do you eat? My friend, Ronnie... Country Life Butter. (laughs) Butter. What sort of other food or what sort of drinks do you have? Because my friend Ronnie from the band The Muffs saw you in Venice at one time having a smoothie. Do you like smoothies? No,
1: he's telling a lie. I don't drink smoothies.
0: What do you drink then to prepare for a tour? Uh, Brussels sprout juice. John... At one time, you gave a special sandwich with salty-tasting mayo. Yeah, well, we'll
1: not go there. Thank you.
0: Okay, how about the Quadrophenia? Phil Daniels recently said you, John, were almost Jimmy in Quadrophenia. Yes,
1: I was. Who were you? Yeah, up- I, I went for that role because Pete Townsend asked me to, but uh, I had a, a somewhat of a disagreement with the Who's manager, and so it, it never came about. Which is a shame because uh, although Phil Daniels did a fantastic job, gotta say, but I could have added something to that.
0: What did you think, John, about the mod revival bands like the Purple Hearts or the Chords or the Merton Parkers?
1: Were you kind of? I'm never very much interested in revivalism in that way, uh, because uh, I have a better term for it. I call it genre hopping. It's too easy for you to pick up on what somebody else has done, and then it's like stealing someone's coat and claiming it as your own, when you really should be spending your time creating something completely new from your own sense of individuality.
0: Understand? I do indeed, and is that what the public image limited song Memories was about? No. John, I was also curious about Hawkwind. Over the years, people have wondered what exactly was your role. Like, were you their LSD supplier? Were you another. <laughs> were you their roadie? Were you another Harry in the crowd? What was your role, John?
1: <laughs> well, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of a suitable refrain for, the, the, for the, the letters LSD. But no, that was not my role. They were a band that were great fun live. And I used to love at an early age uh, traveling off to uh, the, the rock festivals, and usually on my own. And uh, Hawkwind would always be playing those kind of events. And I, I love that sense of community you, you could get from the very early uh, uh, festivals. Uh, these days, those kind of festivals, they're too orchestrated, you feel manipulated, and it's, you can't even go to the toilet without a credit card. And so it's, uh, it's taken on a different, different role for me. It's not really community-run or community-appreciated. Uh, it's more constructed and contrived. But at the same time, good bands do play them. I do them myself from time to time because, indeed, you have to. Otherwise, you'll starve. That's the business we live in.
0: John, when you're going through customs, you've seen an awful lot. Did
1: you actually... No, I'd put it a better way than that. The customs have seen an awful lot of me. <laughs> yeah,
0: ba- boom! Yes, they have indeed. But I was
1: curious... I don't know what it is they're looking for. But honestly, it's, it's, it's back to Brussels sprout juice, which I will, I will always... And, and baked beans and cabbage. Uh, I will eat these things before I take a long flight. Because I'm aware of what customs may be trying to pull on me at the other end. Or pull off me, to be more accurate.
0: Didn't you once encounter a customs guy that had an actual mohawk? That must have made you feel at ease, a customs guy. Well,
1: it's like the times they are a-changing. I I found it deeply hilarious and and heartwarming in in an odd way. Do you still like... You know, welcome to Britain. Yes, we're going to strip search you with mohawks. (laughs) just to make you fit in. (laughs) It's odd that a hairdo that's actually the symbol uh, against repression has been incorporated into repression. But on the other hand, I do kind of understand airport security because, uh, as I've let it be known, me and my wife were once booked on that Lockerbie flight, that Pan Am special, and we missed that flight uh, because my wife was slow at packing, so we changed it to the next day. And if we were on that plane, we would have been blown up. Uh, so I do understand airport security because I, I don't think anyone innocent should, should have to suffer that way. And it's not so much you being blown to smithereens. It's, it's what it did to my family members who had all presumed that I'd caught the flight. And seen that on the news, that it was blown out of the sky. It's, it's quite, quite, you know, unnerving. And so, my view on terrorism, as indeed my view on all, all acts of violence, is uh, negative.
0: John, how about the Exploited and Crass? You've expressed an interest in liking those bands. Have you seen the Exploited? They're still on the circuit, out there playing. Oh, they
1: are what they are. They, st- you know, they stick to their guns. So it's a limited range, but that's fine for them. It, they do what they enjoy and they do it really well and, and so more power to them. People yeah. who do this because they like what they're doing are the people that interest me.
0: Well, for instance, the vibrators are still going. The vibrators are still playing. I think they': so they should
1: with a battery change, anything is possible.
0: Ah, Boom. Yes, they are still rocking and we're still rocking here with John Lydon, live from his place in Los Angeles, California. I'm Nardwar, the human serviette. Pill are coming up on tour very soon. Going to be hitting all the stages all across North America. And John, I was wondering, did the Ruts play better reggae than the Clash? Who? The Ruts. Did the Ruts play better reggae than The Clash?
1: Neither of them, and they shouldn't have bothered to try and mess with a musical format that neither of them uh, understood too well. I mean, apart from my many things in life, I mean, I, I was DJing reggae in reggae clubs uh, at 15 years old. Um, and because for me, where I come from, Finsbury Park, was a very working class class mixed-culture neighbourhood. So reggae, to me, was very naturally part of my backdrop. I didn't think it was with those two outfits. And I think it showed. And, and also the police, when they went into that Roxanne vibe, they were on the wrong side of the hoof.
0: John, what about the band Magma? They are amazing. They had their yeah, own...
1: Yeah, truly, truly masterful. Stunning work.
0: They had their own language, what can you tell the people about Magma and their own language?
1: Well there were several of those bands and there was a term for it, uh... Europa something or the other, I can't remember now off the top of my head. I found the, the new language part a little intellectual and a little contrived and conceited. But uh, as the European community has been evolving over the decades, um, there is a kind of frong, italiana, deutsche, englishness that's creeping in. It's, it's quite a good thing to be uh, multi, multi-languaged and indeed open to multiculturalism. It means no more war. You understand?
0: And that's what we that, want. That we
1: start to celebrate our differences rather than bitterly oppose them. Something the republicans in this country could do well to learn from.
0: John, was the Can remix record called "Sacrilege"? Was that name? I, I
1: don't know the remix. Uh, uh, for me, Can was as it was originally, as I used to see them live.
0: Because I heard that they named the record "Sacrilege" because you wouldn't do a remix. In other words, it would be sacrilegious to mess with Can material, and that's why they called it "Sacrilege."
1: Who did the remix?
0: Well, I thought that you were asked to do a remix.
1: Oh, I was... Uh, yes, this is true. My gosh, this is so long back now. Um, I wouldn't do it. And they called it Sacklet. No, I see, I see no reason to, because it's... Why do I need to stick my name on their hard-earned work? If they want to remix their own material, that's well and fine. And they have every right to. But the last thing a band that good needs... Is a bunch of outsiders hobnobbing with, with, with their material? Kind of destructive, really. How when about- record companies allow what took so much effort to be so original in the first place, to be just thrown out there to a bunch of preposterous new young brats on the block?
0: It's not a good thing. Do you yourself have any canned bootlegs? How much can? No: No,
1: no i never, ever, ever have bought a bootleg in my life. I never will. It's uh, thievery.
0: What do you remember about playing with Screaming Lord Such?
1: Uh, How funny he was, not much else. Uh, He actually did understand reggae, and he did it extremely well. He was bang on the money because he was brought up in that environment. It wasn't him jumping on a bandwagon. Screaming Lord Such was pure, good, jolly, decent reggae, actually.
0: Here is a letter from June eighteenth, 1976, from the New Musical Express. And it says, I'd love to see the pistols make it. Maybe they'll be able to afford some clothes, which don't look like they've been slept in. (laughs) And do you know John Lydon... How
1: sweet! But the point being... Yes, many of my clothes when I'm on tour, I do sleep in. Because you can't be lugging huge suitcases of stuff around with you. It slows you down. And when you have to leave very early in the morning from one hotel to another and travel great distances, the last thing you want to be doing is remembering where all your different accoutrements are. And so, you know, it's nice, but unless you're volunteering to carry my suitcases around for me, I'm gonna look like I slept in my clothes and that's it, period. The end.
0: <laughs> and do you know who wrote that letter? Stephen Morrissey. He was the one that wrote that letter. Stephen Morrissey. Oh. Morrissey.
1: Oh, him with the
0: flowers. Yes, he wrote that in June eighteenth. 19- How sweet.
1: He'd do anything to get famous.
0: <laughs> Send that man
1: a dandelion.
0: <laughs> Did you ever see him around LA at all? Uh, he
1: came to a Pistols gig we did here at the Greek Theatre.
0: He didn't mention the letter that he wrote then from nineteen seventy-six. No, that
1: would be utterly ridiculous. Um, How about bu- it's very, very difficult to meet people backstage because you're full of angst and care about your own gig, and you can't be getting involved in in uh, in, in distracting conversations. It's 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 uh, it's. it's it's never, I've never found it easy to socialize at my own venues. I'd much rather leave, you know, as soon as I come off the stage, because uh, it's too hard. You, you, you're not in any fit frame of mind to, uh, to debate anything on any serious level, because you're
0: exhausted. How about some of your old friends from Britain? Have you had them over? Has Billy Idol ever been to your house? Have you ever talked to him very much in L.A.? <sighs> He turned up here
1: years ago with Steve Jones on a bunch of Harley Davidsons. Oh, and I think the Clash bass player was with them. And I told him to go away because the noise was appalling.
0: Billy Idol was recently asked to be the singer of Aerosmith. Do you think he would be a good choice as the singer of Aerosmith, Billy Idol? what's wrong with
1: the current bloke?
0: I think there was some sort of issues going on for a while, and they needed a replacement temporarily. Oh, that's
1: sad. No, you shouldn't do that. Billy wouldn't be into that, would he? Do you know what I mean? When you do that, you're taking something away. You're not making it better. Although... (laughs) Paul Rogers singing Queen songs kind of worked.
0: Yes, and of course, Paul Rogers lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada as Does well. he
1: now? <laughs> have I put my psychic left foot in it? <laughs>
0: yes, you have indeed. Another Vancouver connection. Paul Rogers is
1: stunning. I, I've seen him uh, recently. See, it was fantastic. I just uh, There's something good about that bloke. But then I loved Free very, very much. When I was young, they, they were the festival band of all time.
0: In the new movie, The Runaways, we see Joan Jett making her own Sex Pistols t-shirt.
1: Oh, you've seen that now? Is what, it out? Uh, yes, it is. Right, I've got a song in it.
0: <laughs> what do you think about The Runaways? What did you think about The Runaways? Well,
1: they were a fun band at the time, and, and it was good to see from America that girls could take on the men. Although we were used to that in England through punk, because there were many girl bands who held their own with men bands. And we viewed each other as equals. So it was kind of neat that Americans were offering the same perspective. But it wasn't really. It was still Girls' Day Out.
0: Well, speaking of Vancouver and movies, did you ever see the movie Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains that had Paul Cook and Steve Jones in it that was filmed in Vancouver?
1: Yeah, there were some strange scenes in
0: that. (laughs) Which ones did you think were strange? I'm
1: not going to go into it, but you know, (laughs) it kind of backfired on poor Paul Cook. And I use the word backfire quite deliberately. Paul will get it, and anyone who's seen the film will. But go on.
0: Oh, what was the last DVD that you rented?
1: Uh, I, I tend not to.
0: What was the last movie? If it's not
1: available on cable, then I'm not really interested. Uh, I don't enjoy going to cinemas because uh, it's too many people want to want to talk to me, and uh, so I'm I'm not allowed to be myself. It's very difficult when you've become a public figure and you're known. It's, uh, you get very little time out.
0: John Lydon... As
1: indeed, as you told me, somebody spotted me drinking a smoothie here. You know, I mean, how, how irrelevant is that?
0: Well, I think that might have been the highlight of his week, to see oh, you drinking a that's, smoothie. That's
1: so not right, and, and, and so misunderstanding me. You know, I, I view myself as a regular human being, and... and and I don't like people to interrupt my regular processes.
0: John, the band, the Desperate Bicycles, they were one of the first DIY punk bands. They had the guitarist Dan Electro. Do you remember the Desperate Bicycles at all? No. How about Alternative TV? What did you think of Alternative TV?
1: Uh, quite interesting. So, uh, but this is, this is going back way back. And I mean, there's been 100,000 bands since. uh, These were great bands, really, because of the the difference that punk was offering. There were so many variations. Um, It's a shame that punk, over the years, has become uh, ill-defined by nonsense like, I suppose, Courtney Love to one extreme, celebrating drugs and vapid stupidity, and then the other, Green Day, celebrating spiky hair and a, a studded leather jacket. Neither of those two statements really uh, have managed to um, come up with anything valid, verbal-wise. They're not for the improvement of the human race, they're just there to mimic and, and quite frankly, mock us.
0: One of my favourite bands from that era, as well as the Sex Pistols was the boys. They are still going with the vibrators too. The boys. Do you remember the boys at yeah. all? First time. Yeah, I
1: met them a few times. They they could be all right. When any of these. But again, it's that backstage scenario. You know, I mean, I, 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 ACDC too, um, uh, Judas Priest. Uh, I mean, all these bands. I mean, I love to say hello, but it's when you come off stage there's not much more you can be offering in terms of conversation. And, and it's, for me, it's not nice to hear great show, Johnny. It's, it's, it's kind of irritating. And so myself, when I go to see other bands, I don't like to go backstage because I realize what, what a challenging, compromising situation that can be on, to both sides. It's a real pressure. But I suppose it's the only way really fellow musicians can get to meet because we don't really have any any social network outside of that at least i don't
0: have you had a chance to meet many of the heroes in an american punk rock at all or canadian punk rock such as jello biafra have you met jello from the dead kennedys at Mm. all
1: yes i have I met him backstage at San Francisco once. I met him also another time doing an interview in uh, Boston with a DJ then at the time. His name was Oedipus. Um, And both times I thought he talked too much and over-intellectualized everything. And it seemed kind of humorless. And whatever his personal agenda was, I thought it was too predominant for me. There, there was no, you know, give it a break, you know, lay off the showbiz and just be a human. He's too busy selling himself. Deliberately trying to be outrageous, which is always nauseating.
0: Well, he's done quite a bit of music and he's still doing it, so at least yeah, he's still doing be it. He's better off
1: letting that talk for him because it, it, it can be stifling a conversation with him.
0: Johnny, last. You know,
1: it's, everything has to be explained instantly, and, and I, I disagree. There, there are times where, as human beings, we just need to socialize in a more friendlier way. And indeed, you can learn far more from humor than you can deadpan seriousness. And Johnny. It's not a war all the time. You don't have to walk around wearing your angst.
0: Who do you think was your favorite American punk band? Did you like the Avengers who played with the Pistols? I never
1: viewed it that way, and I've always bitterly disagreed with um, those kind of definitions. Uh, In fact, I never really accepted the term punk or any category. Anything that labels us lessens us.
0: I myself have tried to help spread the word of pill quite a bit when I've been interviewing bands. I interviewed a Canadian band called Simple Plan. I don't know if you've heard about them. They were like a pop punk band. And they were wearing some t-shirts, which were really generic, and I thought I would give them a pill shirt to wear during the interview. So I gave them a pill shirt to wear during the interview. So I've tried to give pill shirts to bands that I think should wear pill shirts.
1: I would find that a little compromising to my personal philosophy, because I don't insist that anyone should wear anything that I've dictated to them.
0: They didn't keep the shirt on Although I
1: do understand your sense of fun... But the fact is that they put it on at all shows a weakness of personality, <laughs> and or they'd be more than happy for the gift.
0: Well, actually, it's they...
1: a fine line between the two, isn't it?
0: Yes, and they took the shirt right off after that. So oh, it...
1: but at least you put it on. What a mug!
0: <laughs> yes, simple plan. We're I
1: think, I think, I think you scored kudos there. Thank... You showed, you showed a basic inadequacy in his psychology.
0: Well, thanks so much, John Lydon. Anything else you'd like to add to the people out there at all?
1: Yes, Public Image, the band that really, really has changed the landscape of music. We've uh, created so many different genres in in, in and to ourselves, and there's so many bands out there that are currently hugely popular that have given more than a nod and a wink to our forms of music and have claimed it as their own. Well, hello come and have a listen to granddad's because i'm the one what taught them <laughs> what was safe and indeed those musical formats i'm talking about were not safe for me to be inventing at the time uh, i don't deliberately go out of my way to be different it just seems to happen because the subject matter I'm dealing with matters so much to me on a personal level. I'm singing from the heart and the soul. I am a folk musician at heart. And I do not give a nod and a wink to others when I'm writing my songs. They're about what I think matter. I'm not imitating, I'm not faking. Public image is a valid, valid operation, always will be. And that's not bad from a man who's 50 years young.
0: Well, thanks so much, John. Keep on rocking in the free world, and do-do-do-do-do. do do, 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 do.
1: do, do. <laughs> Come on, you gooners. <laughs> Great.
0: Thanks so much for your time, John. If Arsenal John. could be
1: of any more assistance to Canadian soccer, I'm more than
0: happy. <laughs> Long live the Vancouver Whitecaps, right? <laughs>
1: That's a brilliant combination. I must get their shirt.
0: <laughs> we'll have to get one to you.
1: Ah, I'm sure I can procure my own.
0: (laughs) And we'll also get you an 8-track, too, from 2nd Edition. If people are listening, maybe they can send you the 8-track. I've never seen it. I I,
1: I pay no attention to what's available on eBay. You understand?
0: (laughs) But maybe somebody from their personal collection. I I,
1: I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm not one for collecting memorabilia, least of all of myself.
0: Well, I want to say your bandmate, Paul, was really nice because when I talked to him in 1990... 1990- oh, Paul Cook? Yes. Oh, well,
1: he's just a genuinely nice bloke. When,
0: when I talked to him in 1996, when you played in Vancouver, I told him about the Ladies and Gentlemen, the Fabulous Stains movie. He didn't have a copy. I offered to bring a copy to the gig, and then he put me on the guest list, and I went backstage and met him.
1: Yeah. So that no, was- he's a nice person.
0: And then it's really great that now his daughter is playing in the Slits. Yes,
1: that's very good. And Little Holly.
0: And now you have a member of the Slits in your band, Johnny, on the pill Tour.
1: Listen, my stepdaughter is the singer of the Slits. And you have I don't st- need any more Slit members.
0: <laughs> well, thanks so much again, John, and keep hey. on rocking in the free world.
1: May the road rise and your enemies always be behind you.
0: Okay, talk to you later. All right. Okay, bye.
2: This is a Mr. T adventure story. You can follow Mr. T and his gymnastic team friends, Miss Bisbee, Robin, Jeff, Woody, Spike, and Kim, in your very own book. It's easy. Read along. When you hear this tone, it means turn the page. Now, here's
3: Mr. T. This is Mr. T talking. You know, sometimes we get so wrapped up in how a problem bothers us, we don't see what the problem really is. Kim found that out the hard way. We were in Seattle watching for a meet when we tangled with a mean dude that was messing with people's minds. We call this the mystery of the mind thieves.
2: The gym was packed with people. Everyone had their eyes on Kim as she performed on the balance beam. But Kim kept glancing over to the only empty seat in the place. Her father should have been sitting there, but he had not shown up. Mr. T and the rest of the team sat on a bench on the side of the gym. They watched quietly as Kim began her back walkover. Suddenly, Kim lost her balance. Mr. T jumped from his seat. Kim slipped and tumbled to the floor. Mr. T and the team ran to help her.
4: Kim, are you hurt?
2: Robin said.
4: Only my pride,
2: Kim said. You weren't concentrating, said Mr. T.
4: I know. I guess I'm a little upset that my father didn't show. He's here on business, but still, you would think he could spare the time to see me.
3: Kim said. Now don't jump to conclusions. He must have had a good reason said Mr. T. After the
2: meet, Mr. T and the team returned to their hotel. Kim's father was staying in the same hotel. Kim and the other kids went up to see him. Kim knocked three times. Suddenly, the door flew open and Kim's father stood there with a strange look on his face. What do you want? Kim's father said. His voice sounded so mean it made Kim stutter. His eyes glared straight ahead and never blinked.
4: I... I wanted you to, to meet my friends.
2: Kim said. I don't have time for this stuff. I'm busy. Go away. Kim's father slammed the door. Kim turned around and faced her friends. Her lips quivered.
4: What did I do to deserve this?
2: She said. Then she turned and ran down the hall, tears streaming down her cheeks. Later that night, Jeff and Woody saw Kim's father leave the hotel. He was with a man dressed in a long black coat and wearing a big black hat that covered his face. Jeff and Woody followed Kim's father and the mysterious looking man outside. The man pushed Kim's father into the back seat of a long black limo. Then, he got into the car and sped away. Jeff and Woody walked back to the hotel. They went straight to Mr. T and told him what they saw. What kind of business is your father in? Mr. T asked Kim.
4: He's working on a project for the government with two other scientists, said Kim. There's a science conference in town and they are speaking at it. I'm supposed to go tomorrow, but the way he's been treating me, I don't think he wants.
3: We're all going. I want to find out why he's hanging out with such a mysterious character, stated Mr. T.
2: The next day, Mr. T and the team drove the bus to the conference. Many men and women were gathered around studying scientific displays. Kim saw her father standing next to a tall woman by the side door. His eyes had the same blank stare they did at the hotel. Kim recognized the woman, Dr. Eloise Yarby. She worked with Kim's father. In the front of the room, Kim saw Dr. Elliot Harper sitting in his wheelchair. He also worked with Kim's dad. Dr. Harper with the aid of two assistants, demonstrated a remote-controlled robot.
3: You have now come to the end of this side of the recording. Please turn it over for the conclusion of the story.
2: Mr. T and the team stood by the front door while Kim tried to talk with her father. He didn't even look at her. His eyes gazed into space. Go away, he said, then turned and walked out of a side door. Kim turned to Dr. Yarby, but Dr. Yarby quickly followed Kim's father. Kim returned to her friends with tears in her eyes.
4: Why does he treat me this way?
2: she asked. Suddenly, Dr. Harper started slurring his words. The team turned toward the stage. Kim noticed that Dr. Harper had the same strange look on his face as her father. His eyes stared straight ahead and never blinked. Suddenly, he slumped over and passed out. The two men helping him grabbed the wheelchair and pushed him through the door. Hey, who are those
3: guys? Jeff asked.
4: I've never seen them before.
3: Kim replied. Looks like they're kidnapping Dr. Harper. Let's find out, said Mr. T.
2: The team charged after the two men and Dr. Harper. Mr. T and the team followed them outside. The two men pushed Dr. Harper up a ramp into a van. When they saw the team approaching, they shoved Dr. Harper back down the ramp and into the street. The men jumped into the van, which sped away. Dr. Harper rolled out of control into the path of a speeding truck. Quickly, Jeff did a double handspring, just in the nick of time. Jeff snatched Dr. Harper from the wheelchair before it smashed into the truck. Dr. Harper woke up and shook his head. Uh, What happened to me? The last
3: thing I remember, two thugs gave me a shot in the arm. Sounds like someone's messing with your mind. Now I think it's time for us to catch those mind thieves. Said Mr. T. The team jumped into their bus and raced after the van.
2: The chase led them to an airfield. The van and the long black limo were parked next to a plane that looked like a rocket.
4: Over there, boarding that plane. It's my father.
2: Said Kim. Yeah, and there's the man in black, said Woody. And the two thugs who tried to kidnap Dr. Harper, Jeff said. Mr. T drove the bus toward the plane.
3: Hang on. We're gonna hit.
2: Mr. T slammed the bus into the tail assembly so the plane couldn't fly. The three bad guys grabbed Kim's father, leaped to the ground and tried to make their getaway. The team jumped out of the bus. Jeff and Woody nabbed the two thugs. Kim caught up to her father and the man in black.
4: Knock her down. Push her out of the way.
2: Said the man in a high-pitched voice. Kim's father shook his head, blinked and rubbed his eyes. No, you can't make me hurt my daughter. Mr. T ran up and grabbed the man in black. He pulled off
3: the big hat to reveal Dr. Eloise Yarby.
4: So he's really a she.
3: Said Kim. Just like that? No one would suspect her, said Mr. T. Kim's father
2: was fully recovered. That's right. Dr. Yarby, Dr. Harper, and I were working on the most advanced unmanned space probe ever. She stole the plans and tried to steal our minds with her mind-control formula. She was going to sell our ideas to a foreign power. Kim
3: hugged her father.
4: How could my mind-control formula fail?
3: Asked Dr. Yarby. There's something stronger than your formula. That's how. It's called love. Now I'm taking you and your game to jail. Said Mr. T. Get the picture? When you get your feelings hurt by someone you love, think before you cry. Because the someone you love might be the one who's really hurting. Take it from me,
0: Mr. T. And you're still listening, hopefully, to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Thank you, Chris-erific, for constantly tuning in, at least I know, since March 26th, 2010. And that's when I first broadcast my interview with Johnny Rotten. Johnny Lydon! And you heard that interview, followed by... Mr. T in The Mystery of the Mine Thieves, Starland Presents. Hi, Nardwar. My brother loves your channel and told me to give you this LP of him for your radio show on CITR. He was here from Germany, and I asked and asked me to give this to you. It's one of the 300 limited edition records. So right now, we're going to hear right now this record by the band H. We're going to hear as much as we can by the band H. Thank you so much for this record by the band H on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette, Radio Show.
3: it
5: mean a bit it mean a
3: bit anda a bit bit a bit
5: On Christmas Eve, the CBC presents Dr. Martin Luther King's Christmas Sermon on Peace and
1: Nonviolence as the fifth and final Massey Lecture for 1967.
5: Peace on earth. This Christmas season finds us a rather bewildered human race. We neither have peace within nor peace without. Everywhere, paralyzing fears harrow people by day and haunt them by night. Our world is sick with war. Everywhere we turn, we see its ominous possibilities. And yet, my friends, a Christmas hope for peace and goodwill toward all men can no longer be dismissed as a kind of pious dream of some utopian hoper. If we don't have goodwill toward men in this world, we will destroy ourselves by the misuse of our own instruments and our own power. Wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. There may have been a time when war served as a negative good by preventing the spread and growth of an evil force. But the very destructive power of modern weapons of warfare eliminates even the possibility that war may any longer serve as a negative good. And so if we assume that life is worth living, if we assume that mankind has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war. And so let us this morning explore the conditions for peace. And as we would explore these conditions, I would like to suggest that modern man really go all out to study the meaning of nonviolence, its philosophy and its strategy. We have experimented with the meaning of nonviolence and our struggle for racial justice in the United States. But now, the time has come for man to experiment with nonviolence in all areas of human conflict. And that means nonviolence on an international scale. Now let me suggest first that if we are to have peace on earth, our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. No individual can live alone No nation can live alone and as long as we try the more we're going to have war in this world. The judgment of God is upon us. And we must either learn to live together as brothers or we're all going to perish together as fools. Yes, As nations and individuals, we are interdependent. I've mentioned to you before of our visit to India some years ago. It was a marvelous experience. But I say to you this morning that there were those depressing moments. How can one avoid being depressed? When he sees with his own eyes evidences of millions of people going to bed hungry at night. Yes, sir, yes, sir. How can one avoid being depressed? When he sees with his own eyes thousands of people sleeping on the sidewalks at night. More than a million people sleep on the sidewalks of Bombay, India, every night. More than a half a million sleep on the sidewalks of Calcutta every night. They have no houses to go in. They have no beds to sleep in. As I beheld these conditions, something within me cried out, can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? And an answer came, oh no. And I started thinking about the fact Right here in our country, we spend millions of dollars every day to store surplus food. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge. In the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children in Asia, and Africa, Latin America, and even in our own nation who go to bed hungry at night. It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny, and whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for a sponge, and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for the bar of soap. And that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And then you go in the kitchen to drink your coffee for the morning. That's poured in your cup by a South American. Or maybe you want tea. That's poured in your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you are desirous of having cocoa for breakfast. And that's poured in your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast. And that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you are dependent on more than half of the world. This is the way our universe is structured. It is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. Now let me say secondly, that if we are to have peace in the world, men and nations must embrace the nonviolent affirmation that ends and means must cohere. One of the great philosophical debates of history has been over the whole question of means and end. And there have always been those who argued that the end justifies the means, that the means really aren't important. The important thing is to get to the end, you seek. So if you are seeking to develop a just society, the important thing is to get there. And the means uh, really aren't important. Any means that will get you there. They may, may be violent. They may be untruthful means. They may even be unjust means to get to a just end. There have been those who have argued this throughout history, but we will never have peace in the world until men everywhere recognize that ends are not cut off from means, because the means represent the ideal in the making and the end in process, and ultimately, you can't reach good ends through evil means because the means represent the seed and the end represents the tree. It's one of the strangest things that all of the great military geniuses of the world have talked about peace. The conquerors of old who came killing in pursuit of peace. Alexander, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, and Napoleon, were akin in seeking a peaceful world order. Do you know, if you will read Mein Kampf close enough, Hitler contended that everything that he did in Germany was for peace. And the leaders of the world today talk eloquently about peace. Every time we drop our bombs in North Vietnam, President Johnson is talking eloquently about peace. Make it, plain. Make it plain. What is the problem? They are talking about peace as a distant goal, as an end we seek. But one day we must come to see that peace is not merely a distant goal that we seek, but it is a means by which we arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. All of this is saying that in the final analysis, means and ends must cohere because the end is preexistent in the means and ultimately destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. Man. Now let me say the next thing we must be concerned about if we're to have peace on earth goodwill toward men must be the nonviolent affirmation of the sacredness of all human life. Life is sacred. Every man is somebody because he is a child of God. And so when we say thou shall not kill, we are really saying that Human life is too sacred yes. to be killed on the battlefields of the world. Man is more than a tiny vagary of whirling electrons out of whisper smoke from a limitless smoldering. Man is a child of God made in his image. Yes. And therefore must be respected as such until men see this everywhere, until nations see this everywhere, we will be fighting wars. One day somebody should remind us that even though there may be political and ideological differences, the Vietnamese are our brothers, the Russians are our brothers, the Chinese, Our brothers. And one one day, we've got to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. But in Christ, that is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Christ, that is neither male nor female. In Christ, that is neither communist nor capitalist. In Christ, somehow, That is neither bond nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus.